It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Obviously, all eyes have been on the Middle East, but a lot of people have been asking the question, what effect is what's happening in the Middle East going to have on American politics? Now, how do you know it is going to have an impact on American politics? Well, because it always has. And just about, uh, I don't know, I guess now it's about 12 years ago, there was a special election for a vacant congressional seat in Queens, a seat that had been held, Queens and Brooklyn to be precise, a seat that had been held by Anthony Weiner. And out of nowhere, in a heavily Democratic district, a district that had been represented by a Democrat for many years, a Republican was able to win. Now, he owed his victory in part to the support of Ed Koch. I interviewed Mayor Koch at the time, and he said the reason that he was supporting this Republican was he didn't like where Barack Obama and the Democrats were on Israel. That is one of the many, many fascinating stories about Bob Turner's career. Bob Turner, a lot of you may know as a former congressman. Some of you may even, if you follow New York politics closely, may know him as a former Republican county chairman. But what I didn't realize until picking up his new book, that was then, Life Lessons from Queens, Hollywood, and the Halls of Congress, is that if you were to look at Bob Turner's career, as a 26-volume encyclopedia, the amount of time that he spent in politics would be maybe one-third of one volume of that incredible, incredible life. This man I knew worked in media, knew did pretty well. I had no idea the impact that he's had on so many media products that have become and have been household names over the course of the last four or five decades. Very, very pleased to welcome former Republican congressman from New York and author of the new book, That Was Then, Congressman Bob Turner. Bob, it's been a long time. It's great to talk to you again. Well, thank you very much, Frank. You're too kind. Bob, I alluded to what's going on in in Israel. Give people a little background who may not remember the stakes uh, in your special election back in 2011. Why would Ed Koch, a an avowed Zionist, a very proud Jew, why would Ed Koch back you over a Democrat, even though he was a Democrat, over a Jewish Democrat when he was a Jewish Democrat? And to be honest, it was a Democrat that didn't exactly have a history of anti-Israel rhetoric. Why would Mayor Koch back you over that Jewish Democrat? Well, uh, I believe nobody trusted uh, Obama. And uh, he was a suspect to, to me, uh, other Republicans and uh, sane uh, Democrats uh, in, in his approach to uh, Iran and um, a slight anti-Israeli bias, uh, which is kind of typical of uh, the liberal uh, left. Ed Koch was trying to push him in the right direction. Following the election, there was a, a, a meeting between at the U.N., 
with um, uh, Koch and uh, President Obama. And I immediately, after the meeting, asked Ed what was said, and he said, I can't tell you that. All I can tell you is um, that Obama said, you sent me a message, message received. Later that afternoon, he gave the most uh, pro-Israeli speech of his career. (laughs) No follow-up on what actually happened. And um, I have a a pretty bad attitude based on the, the one piece of legislation that I got passed concerning Iran uh, reparations. It was discovered that the Iranian assets were frozen, but most of them were in international hands. We had enough clout to see that they weren't released, but we couldn't seize them. The Iranians lost a court battle on uh, the reparations for uh, the Kobar uh, Towers and the marine barracks bombings, there was a $1.2 billion in Iranian assets that we could actually seize, and we had it frozen. Uh, My bill, uh, and it was incorporated in a bigger bill, uh, was put together with uh, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who was the uh, um, Democratic uh, a representative on the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, and I was on the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House, allowed that uh, each of the victims, and there were 85 families involved, would participate equally in the reparations, that the money could be seized and distributed uh, evenly between everyone and every family that was uh, had a lost loved one. Uh, and uh, they would um, get an equal share, whether they were a colonel or a private or whatever. And um, it was a complex bill because it it covered uh, finance rules, uh, foreign affairs, and uh, one a finance committee. Uh, so I had to see all the various chairmen of of the different committees to get everybody on board, and uh, it was easily. Re- received. I had no Mm. real opposition. And um, it was an outturn for the government to deliver. And uh, I was told that this may take a year of wrangling. It was a Citicorp um, subsidiary. And I was out of the house by then. And not that it would have mattered. But at that point, uh, Obama unfroze the uh, assets, despite the bill, and uh, as a some kind of a gesture of peace and goodwill. And how did that work out? <laughs> uh, so no, no one, it, it's being litigated, I understand, even today, but uh, chances of a resolution are, are remote. All right. I want to run through a bunch of really fascinating stories that you uh, cover in your book. That was then life lessons from Queens, Hollywood and the halls of Congress. But uh, since you brought up the situation in the in the Middle East, 
Give me your thoughts on what we're seeing in Israel now. Obviously, this Hamas attack has left uh, Israel reeling, and it's led to uh, really an international outpouring of support and sympathy for these innocent people that have been killed and these innocent people that have been taken hostage, potentially including dozens of Americans. Give me your take on where we are right now with this Israel situation. Well, I find the the Hamas actions rather curious. I I think this is part of a bigger picture. They know they're going to lose going in. Uh, The the ground troops are are crazy, indoctrinated, even drugged up. Um, The Hamas ground troops. Yes. Yeah. And um, Israel will contain them, I think, from here on in. It'll be a tactical matter. And as far as I'm concerned, it's whether percussion grenades in the tunnels are better than flamethrowers or flamethrowers are better. These people have to be wiped out. And um, I I think they have the will and the leadership at this point to do it. But there can be no surprises here. Hamas does not have the wherewithal to sustain this um, in in any numbers, and they will be obliterated. Um, I I think the real battle will be in the north, and I don't know what the uh, next step of this is. But uh, Hezbollah, which is uh, far better trained and equipped uh, arm of uh, Iran, uh, can be rather troublesome. I think the Israelis are capable of of taking care of that matter, too. But things can uh, escalate um, between um, uh, Syria, uh, Hezbollah, and the um, uh, uh, Iranian uh, arms and maybe even uh, troops. So I think what happens in the next uh, couple of weeks will be interesting there. The Israelis have a hell of a fight going through those um, maze of tunnels and and, uh, apartments. Uh, It will be far worse than our American battle in Fallujah, but disciplined, smart, patient troops can get it done. And they will. One of the things that was uh, reported when uh, Kevin McCarthy was ousted as the House Speaker, first time in history that that happened, and I think this is pretty widely accepted, is that there was a contingent of Republicans in the House that were uh, unsupportive of further funding of the Ukrainian war and the Ukrainian war efforts. And one of the issues that President Biden appears to be dealing with is that there's a strong contingent of Democrats that is not supportive of more aid to Israel. The the Washington Post reported yesterday that uh, that they're considering. And again, this is all citing anonymous sources. So who knows? But the Washington Post said that they're considering linking those two issues of continued funding for the Ukraine war and of additional aid aid for the Israeli war effort. Do you think that's a good idea? Uh, I know people who might have reservations about either one of those or might support either one of those think that both of those might be deserving of an independent vote on e- the merits of each issue. Um, the the um, li- linking will, will be a, um, a political strategy and 
Now, I'm not sure uh, if it'll be that uh, effective, but but I think independently, both cases should prevail and, and go forward. We will support the Ukraine. We will support uh, Israel with arms and money. Um, I, I don't um, see the minority, which between both parties is probably less than 30 percent carrying the day. They can screw things up uh, just as six uh, or eight Republicans uh, uh, screwed up the um the House at this critical time, uh, a very stupid, not just poorly thought out, an absolutely stupid position, uh, Gates and um, uh, some of the others, outrageously dumb and infuriating. But such as politics. <laughs> such as such as politics, indeed. You were on the receiving end of some of that uh, such as politics when uh, you were your district was redistricted and uh, New York lost a congressional seat and the seats had to come from somewhere. Shockingly, they took your seat, which had been a Republican seat just when you won it, and they divided it into several Democratic seats. So without a congressional seat uh, to run for, you instead made the decision to run for U.S. Senate. You did not win the U.S. Senate election and your career as an elected official came to an end. Any regrets, Bob, about your decision-making process there? Through the prism of hindsight, would you have done it all the same way? Would you have still gone forward with that Senate candidacy? Uh, Well, (laughs) probably because I'm a little thick, I would. (laughs) Uh, I had a pretty good idea. This was not going to um, uh, work. It was a presidential election with with, uh, Obama at the top of the ticket. Uh, Gildebrand was a um, a, a very undistinguished um, uh, senator, um, but but still, uh, I was willing to give it a shot. I thought we could have helped the uh, upstate uh, ticket. I, in my own calculations, I thought I could do about forty-two uh, uh, to forty-five percent of the vote. A losing campaign, as it turned out, the um, uh, candidate that, that was uh, selected, and a good candidate, but nonetheless, uh, um, only got about twenty-five percent of the vote, and which uh, impacted uh, a few of the congressional. Um, uh, and other uh, races uh, upstate and elsewhere. So, With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. 
Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org. So we talked about the end of your congressional career. The uh, portion of your life and your career that you uh, that you describe in your book (laughs) right before going into Congress and right before running for Congress was the period that you describe as semi retirement. What made you want to get involved in politics? How did you go from uh, what you've termed semi-retirement to running for Congress? What inspired you when you had already done very well in the private sector to want to give something back to public service? I'm sure I could word this more eloquently, but I was just pissed off. I thought Obamacare... Uh, his foreign policy decisions, uh, et cetera, were just an abomination. And um, somebody had to stand up for it. And uh, nobody was going to run against Wiener. And uh, I thought I could make a pretty good race of it. I was 70 years old <laughs> when I decided to start this new mm-hmm. career, kind mm-hmm. of. Um, so I did it uh, initially as... Um, uh, a protest, and um, I got such good support and so much help from uh, friends and colleagues all over New York um, that, that we really made a battle out of it, you know. And, and it, it turned out as um, I expected uh, against Wiener, and, and then Wiener um, after his. Um, exposure, you may say, needed uh, um, to resign. And uh, I wanted someone else to run and that I would uh, support. Uh, But uh, that person declined. And I said, oh, well, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it as well as I can. And and, uh, as it turned out, we, (laughs) we prevailed. No doubt about it. And, you know, we've talked to Anthony Weiner on this program before about your race against him. He actually had very kind things to say about you. Uh, O.B. Murray, who was your campaign manager in the special election in 2011, uh, very laudatory uh, about you as a a candidate and even more so as a human being. We've spoken a lot about those races. Was there something in particular, and and maybe people don't remember back before Wiener was scandal tarred, but was there something in particular about Anthony Wiener that really grated on you about him? Was there something about him and what he was doing in Congress or the way he was handling himself that especially irked you? Uh, Yes, I, I think his behavior on the floor um, particularly in attacking uh, Peter King, mm. uh, was very irksome to me. But uh, I will have to give you something nice to say about Wiener. After I won the election, I got a call from Anthony, uh, and he said he would like to invite me for breakfast. He said, you, you have a job to do, and I think I can give you a number of shortcuts and some good advice. So I've met him in a diner, and we met for almost two and a half hours. And he reviewed all the issues that were outstanding in the district, where I could be effective, where I would simply have to pay some lip service, and um, who are the people I could rely on, and who you need to be a little wary of. 
it was a frank and honest and um, very pointed conversation on making me a better congressman to serve that district than I might have been without it. So I appreciate it, and I thought it was rather generous on his part, and he was still interested in serving the uh, community. That being said, I am far more angry with uh, Mr. Weiner because of his antics. He was not able to run for mayor of New York, and instead we got de Blasio. Oh, yeah, don't don't get don't get me started. We're on the same page uh, on that front. Hey, um, you also alluded to your work on the Iranian reparations bill with uh, Bob Menendez. Uh, obviously, Bob Menendez is the latest scandal plague right. politician. Um, uh, uh, how did you find exactly? I, I better I better keep my distance from you. Um, uh, how did you find Bob Menendez as a partner in government? Uh, did you ever get Get the impression that he was that he was up to something nefarious, or that he was especially crooked. No, no, not not at all. And not only that, I never spoke to him. Ah, my uh, staff, legislative staff, talked to his legislative staff, and the whole thing was resolved. And uh, interestingly, when we first put the bill forward, his staff came back and said. Senator Menendez likes your version of the bill better than his. We're going to go with yours, which meant that the bill would be the Turner Menendez reparations bill. So that was what passed the House and it went on to the Senate when Schumer grabbed it and said, Turner is not going to be (laughs) on this bill. No, no, no. So they melded it into another bill, a Syrian, Iranian, uh, something or other, and uh, took our, both our names off the bill and just put the clauses into a bigger bill, which uh, President Obama signed and, of course, did not implement. One of the most... Um... I don't know, difficult moments in my career as a broadcaster has been was uh, Hurricane Sandy. And speaking with a lot of people that were in office at that time, they tell me that was some of their most difficult times in public office. You had a uniquely difficult situation because you were concerned with obviously getting your constituents the help that they needed, the information that they needed. But you had to do it while your own home was washed away as a result of Hurricane Sandy. Tell me about that, uh, Bob, how you're able to stay focused on helping your district and your constituents while your house has been destroyed. No, my my, uh, house was not washed away. It was burned to a crisp. The um, uh, my wife and I were hunkering down. And uh, we had a fairly new house, and it was built to withstand hurricanes. We would have done okay. But a uh, fire started, uh, an electrical problem on the house next door to us. Mm. Uh, Over 130 houses were destroyed by the flames. Um, And uh, Peggy and I escaped with uh, water up to our chins and... and, uh, a tidal surge and uh, flames of shooting over our heads. Uh, it was a very interesting night. But 
the amount of destruction throughout the uh, the, the Rockaways, uh, Broad Channel, uh, Garrison Beach, uh, uh, was just uh, horrendous. And um, we were into a, uh, uh, a rather conservative Congress who said, some said, you know, you should have insurance for this. Well, I said, I think some people did and some didn't, but nevertheless... <laughs> Fellas, uh, we've had a lot of hurricanes, and the government has um, helped. And um, um, John Boehner was terrific, and Steve uh, Scalise, um, uh, who had experienced Katrina in uh, his district, mm. uh, were, were um, particularly helpful. You know, there wasn't too much to do except find a, a new house. <laughs> Because everything went. So um, Peggy took care of that, and um, I had to take care of the congressional business. And, uh, you know, some of it is, some of the job is just uh, showing up and uh, letting people know that uh, this help is on the way, even though it wasn't as swift as I liked. I could talk with you all day about all the media stories that you've covered here, and I hope you'll come back. Maybe we could do a part two next week. But I was particularly I was particularly interested in the portion of your book in which you talk about the uh, the Rush Limbaugh TV show. You know, it's funny. I was a big fan of Rush the TV show, but it's something that even a lot of his radio fans kind of speak of negatively and sort of a rare blemish on Russia's professional resume. I certainly didn't view it that way. I'm wondering if you can briefly explain what your role was with Rush Limbaugh's television show and if you share my view that he doesn't necessarily get his just desserts for what a good show that was. Uh, it, it most certainly was a good show, and I, I was rather proud of it. Rush had an enormously profitable and uh, successful run on radio. I was the president at that time of a company called Multimedia Entertainment, and we had uh, Donahue and Sally and uh, Springer and uh, several others, and I felt it was a perfect slot late night for Rush to do the same type show he did. Uh, He had tried TV a few times, and... um, as an interviewer or um, uh, working with uh, guests, etc., it never really quite came together. Essentially, what the Rush show was his radio show. He sat behind a desk and he talked to the camera. Um, occasionally, he'd use a little clip or something, but that was uh, about the only prop he had. The, the show was like 22 uh, or three minutes of uh, airtime, and very often it was a compendium of what he did that day on the mm. radio. So it was not that taxing on, on him. And it was a very profitable program, but not in the terms of what he was making in, in um, radio. He was making uh, about $50 million a year. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and we're about three or four million in total profits for for the producer for the and um, 
one of the better parts of the show is that uh, Roger Ailes, who was a friend of mine, was the executive producer of the show. Uh, this is before Fox, sure. uh, which was about three years after that. And uh, it was a, a, a good experience. Uh, ultimately, Rush said this is just not worth the amount of effort I have to put into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can uh, I can understand it. I mean, people think that uh, because someone as talented as Rush makes three hours on the radio sound easy, that it is, when uh, it's certainly not uh, mm-hmm. the case. Bob, uh, I want to definitely encourage people to check out the book. That was then Life Lessons from Queens, Hollywood, and the Halls of Congress. It's available on Amazon and a lot of other places. Books are sold. Uh, the next time we chat, I want I want to ask you a little bit more about Jerry Springer, Phil Donahue, and uh, <laughs> okay. kind of the future of the political uh, the political landscape as we know it. Thanks so much for the time. Okay, and thank you. Bob Turner, former Republican congressman from New York, former Republican county chairman from Queens, and the author of the book, That Was Then. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.